Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. So how do you avoid getting scammed? How do you avoid getting scammed in an investment? How do you avoid getting scammed in your business? How do you avoid um, fraud, uh, whether intentional or unintentional? Today, we have an expert uh, to talk to us, Kelly Richmond Pope, who wrote the book, Fool Me Once. And we're going to talk about, actually have a conversation about what are some things we can do to avoid being scammed. Why, why do people scam us in the first place? Why are we so susceptible to being scammed? The, the challenge is, is that, you know, we have FTX, we got, we got this big, we had Bernie Madoff before, before um, FTX. We, we've got all sorts of fraud going on. Um, I see it almost every day, unfortunately. And uh, Kelly is the uh, really the uh, a forensic accountant an expert in this but Kelly welcome to the show uh wealthability show and thanks so much for being with us and if you would give us a little of your background sure thanks for having me first of all I'm excited to join um, by way of background um, I'm an accounting professor at DePaul University in Chicago and um, I started studying white collar crime and fraud actually in my PhD program at the time, I was interested in ethical decision-making of accounting students and, and where their decision-making um, went wrong or how their ethical decisions compare to other profession, professions. So I um, started going into the area of fraud because I felt like if you ask anybody, are they ethical, raise your hand if you're ethical, the whole room raises their hand. But then when you start going into different scenarios, people can rationalize why it's okay to cut corners or not follow the rules that are established. So I started uh, telling myself, you know, this area of fraud is actually a little more interesting to me because it's the absence of ethics, you know, and it's how we as human beings justify what we want. And I became fascinated in that. So um, I started going around the country and doing these on-camera interviews with white collar felons, whistleblowers and victims of fraud as really as a way to learn because I wanted to understand from the inside, how things break down. So I did that for uh, several years and then um, did my first documentary, turned all those interviews into my first documentary called Crossing the Line, Ordinary People Committing Extraordinary Crimes. So that um, circulated around um, higher education institutions around the world and then um, stumbled into this crazy fraud story that happened in Dixon, Illinois, about a city comptroller who embezzled $53.7 million over 20 years. And I turned that into a documentary called All the Queen's Horses. And um, so if you're looking for a great documentary, uh, I suggest you check it out. It's on Amazon Prime now. And um, 
Then I decided, you know, there's one more project in me. And that led me to the book, Fool Me Once, Scam Stories and Secrets from the Trillion Dollar Fraud Industry. So that's a little bit of background. That's my whole life in uh, 90 seconds. I love it. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing that. And there's a lot to unpack just in what you said there. I, I'd kind of like to start with, you know, there's um, there would be no fraud if people didn't allow themselves to be scammed, right? So what is it? Um, let's just start right there. Why are we so susceptible to fraud? And it seems like it's accelerated. It seems like, uh, and is it, is it just a matter of greed? Is it a matter of we're not paying attention? What are, what are some of the things that lead to us being, uh, kind of opening ourselves up to fraud? Sure. So not that I am doing any victim shaming. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface what I'm going to say, but when you, in your opening and you talked about Madoff and you talked about FTX, and even when you think about Elizabeth Holmes, right. there's something that all of those investors had in common. And that was, we want, we are attracted to this insanely insane uh, return that doesn't make any yep. sense. And we're attracted to that. And so when you think about that profile of being attracted to something that is clearly an outlier, you open yourself up to a lot of things when you're willing to accept something that just seems odd. And so, you know, like take a take um, Bernie Madoff's, his, his returns were outlandish in comparison to the market. And there were a few people that did win the early ones. You know, they did receive those um, significant um, returns and you were attracted to that. So it almost, you almost have to turn the mirror on yourself and say, what is it about me that attracts me to this outlandish thing? Because maybe I could just get a piece of it. You think about um, Elizabeth Holmes and just her profile, her mm -hmm. profile alone. For all intents and purposes, Elizabeth Holmes was a high school student and not a known genius, but a high school student who created a technology that all you needed to do was a drop of blood from your finger to run tons and tons of tests. If it were that easy, don't you think one of the Nobel Prize winners would have figured that out by now? If it, I mean, you know, so like just think about what is so what is attracting us to these outlandish kinds of results. And so I open by saying I don't want to do any kind of victim blaming, but I do want to do some victim reflection. And what is it about us that that makes us want to believe what doesn't seem on the surface to make any sense? Yeah. So, so it seems to me like you've got a couple of different groups here. You've got the early adopters, right? So, and those people, and we can get into this later, but I think a lot of the fraudsters didn't start out as fraudsters. They actually started out being legitimate, sure. um, legitimate opportunities and they were legitimately investing people's money and they were getting good returns. And then they just had a big year or something like that. And then people go, wow, um, so the early adopters, they got in. I want to get in on that. Um, how much do you think um, this whole um, uh, FOMO, fear of missing out, uh, plays on people, who, uh, on us when we, and when we, when we get into things we shouldn't be getting into? And it, it can even be something like in 2006, it was real estate, right? And mm -hmm. they weren't scams. They just, it was just not, we weren't smart enough. You know, people weren't smart enough to actually do it. They didn't have the education. 
it was like, it's that too good to be true. What, what's, what causes that fear of missing out mentality? You know, I think that there's this idea that, um, if it, if I want a piece of what they got, you know? And so I, I do think we do have, um, we do have a fear of missing out, but we all want to win. And we, you know, if you think about where we've gone in society, you know, 50 years ago, people's wealth and their success was not on display as it is now. We didn't have social media. We didn't think that wealth could happen overnight. We believe that wealth came from roll up your sleeves, hard work, and it takes time. Now, fast forward to where we are now, we believe wealth is instant. We believe that success can happen overnight. So I think it's it may be a little bit of fear of missing out, but this belief now that success is faster, that growth is quick, that returns are much higher. And so if you saw it for just one person or for one business, you think it could be good for you. So I think that we've had just a mentality shift that I don't know that it's a good shift for in the right direction, but this idea of things taking time, we're, you know, we we just don't see that as much, I think, as we used to. I think about, um, I'm an accounting professor, and something that we're noticing is a decline in the number of students that want to major in accounting that sit for the CPA right. exam. Right. And some of that decline, I would I believe, is the length of time it takes to study, to prepare, to move up the ranks in an accounting firm, whether you're the big four, regional, or even smaller, you know, it takes time. And so now we're in this, you know, I'm going to give you 60 seconds. And if I don't get what I need today or quickly, I'm not, I'm not for it. I'm not going to stick with it. So I think we've just had such a mentality shift that so many of us are willing to engage or try to engage to push that envelope because what if I win and I don't get caught? There is a chance, a high probability that that could happen. So I'm willing to roll a die to see what happens. So instant gratification, basically. We're, instant. We're, we're looking for the magic pill, right? So we can't yeah. magic pill. I, I see it all the time because in my professions in the tax world, right? And so uh, I see people want, tell me, tell me, tell me how to, eliminate my tax. Tell me how to reduce my tax. And I said, I can show you how to do that. It will take you five years, but we can get there. If you want to, you have to make some changes in your life, but we can get there. We can get there legally. Um, but people want the magic. Okay. I want the instant. Give me, what can I do right now? Right? Not what can I do over the next five years? So um, let's kind of shift now, <clears throat> excuse me, let's shift to uh, the perpetrators. Okay, so the perpetrators of the fraud. Now, um, you talk about you talk about the difference between the intentional fraudster and kind of almost the unintentional fraudster. So um, the, let's start with the I think the easy one, which is the intentional fraudster. So um, they they're really out to get the to, to get the money. They they know they're doing it. They know what what they're after. I mean, you, if you if you watch Ben Affleck and the accountant, I mean, he knew what he was doing, right? So he was. Sure. Um, so how do you protect yourself against those people? So I think with the intentional perpetrators, they, um, because they know the system so well, 
you need two things. One, you need to make sure all of your internal controls are always working and checking on those. And you really need scenario-based training so that you can understand how people would actually respond in a situation. For example, and, and this is a completely non-financial accounting standards example, but say for instance, someone gives you too much change back in the store. Does this person say something? Does it, do they not? Does this person say, hey, that's their mistake. They should have figured it out. They gave me an extra 20 instead of a five. I'm taking it. That tells you something about a person. It really does. And so I think that when you when you can figure out nuances of people's personalities, that gives you insight into how they would perform or respond in different areas. I don't think enough of our training does that. A lot of our training is check the box training. Did you read the code of conduct? Check the box. You know, and that's not really getting to the psyche of people. And I think you need to understand that better. So that's why we have to make sure we have sound internal controls to really protect people, not the organization, but to protect, we're doing, we need to protect ourselves from ourselves. Okay. So let's go ahead and get into internal controls because a lot of people don't know what that means. A lot of investors have no idea what that means because they don't have a business, they're investors. And then you have business owners that have never had internal controls. I run into them every day. Um, so let's, let's talk about what internal controls mean. Um, in, in a business, let's start with a business setting. That's sure. So, one. so I, I used the, a, a more formal term, but let's sort of break it down to just understanding an internal control is something as simple as opening your mail. Say for instance, you have an assistant or someone that's a barrier between the mail and you. And that person knows that you never pay attention to any of the bills. You don't read your finance. You don't read your bank statements. You read nothing because you expect that one person to do everything and tell you the information. You then have made that person a very powerful person and a control, something that you're doing internally is showing that person that you're paying attention. So internal controls don't always have to be as sophisticated as I think we talk about them. You don't always have to be a CPA or an auditor to really know how to protect your organization. Um, an internal control could be when I hire someone when when or when they leave the company, I need to make sure that every piece of um, access they had to anything financial is cut off. A lot of us don't do that. Those are simple internal controls that we often don't think about because we think about them being something far more formal, for, far more expensive than I think they actually are. So it's just a way, it's a control to protect your, your organization. And I would argue that even the smallest of businesses has controls, they're just not calling them that. You know, they're just not calling them internal controls. If you are a small business and you don't accept a personal check, that's an internal control because you feel that someone could write a bad check or you might decide that when I take on a new client, um, they have to, um, I need to do three reference checks on past clients or, or past customers. That's an internal control. So I think these organizations, small to medium, have them. They're just not calling them that. But it's things that we do to protect our organizations and protect our people inside of our organizations. Okay, so... Um... So we need to do things, for example, separation of duties would be the obvious one, right? We're opening the mail instead of our assistant opening the mail. So we've got some check on that, just to check and balance, right? So that that's pretty simple stuff. Um, so um, a lot of the fraud is being committed by computer um, right now. 
Um, it's emails and stuff like that. Can you talk about how to prevent uh, being susceptible to that kind of fraud? Sure. You know, um, how to be, how to not be susceptible to almost any kind of fraud is slowing down. Busyness, I think, is the one thing that helps any kind of fraud happen. Because, you know, we talked about the mail example. The reason why you're not checking the mail is because you're running in 15 different directions. Slow down. Take five things off the list so you can pay attention to how your organization and your business is running. So I think that um, when we think about email, when we think about the way that um, cyber crimes happen and you get this uh, strange email or strange voicemail, look at it, slow down, look at the email, read the tone. If it's coming from a, a person that is always mean and they send this most friendliest email ever, that you, the hairs on the back of your neck should stand up because you know this person. So there's typically red flags that we are not paying attention to. And they're not often non-technical. They're often very emotional. And we just suppress that emotion and we shouldn't. So, I, you know, to be uh, an accountant and to be a CPA and to say that, oh, to, to not hear me say, you need to run a metric, you need to do a, a financial analysis. I'm not gonna take it to that level because a lot of it is behavioral things that we are just suppressing. And those red flags are staring us right in the face. You know, I um, when I get a, a strange email from a family member that might be uh, stranded somewhere and they need some money, first of all, do I even have this family member? Do I know of some, like I, I slow down and I start asking myself, there are things in here that don't make sense. And so I think just slowing down and Looking at the facts helps a lot. And a lot of times there was um, Barbara Cochran from Shark Tank. Uh, I remember reading an article in uh, CNBC a couple of years back where she um, received an email um, where she was supposed to um, wire some money somewhere. Her assistant received the email and it was Barbara, but it wasn't Barbara, asking a wire to be made and they made it. And oh, wow. the email had a wrong address. But it looked it was one thing off that um, didn't look that that was suspicious. If you looked at it closely, the tone of the email really didn't match the way Barbara um, sounded. But the assistant didn't feel as though she could push back and ask. You know, she didn't want to appear that she didn't know. So, you know. Fear of missing out. Uh, we may need to come up with a new a new one. Um, fear of looking stupid. What would that be? <laughs> what would that acronym be? Because when you think about a, a point like that, that you just um, made about people not wanting, people starting out in a legitimate business. A lot of us, especially in the investment community, you're taking in people's money and you're helping it grow. And you might have five good, great years and you've made your client's money grow. And then there's a market downturn. And how many of us feel comfortable with admitting failure? Mm -hmm. You know, so this idea of I, I lost something and owning that and saying that is very, very hard for many of us. You know, if you're not an athlete, because, you know, athletes, I think, are programmed to understand loss, wins and losses. Outside of being an athlete, if you're just a regular person walking down the street, failure doesn't feel good. And it's not something that we talk about. And so in the investment community and a lot of the victims that I've interviewed um, over the years have talked about 
their investment professional not telling them when things were bad. Right. And and that's a tough thing to that's a tough conversation to have with someone. How, how, in, in a let's say you're in an organization, you're in a business, it could be a nonprofit organization, doesn't matter, because uh, fraud happens everywhere. Uh, how do you create that culture where you allow people to make mistakes and to admit you know, those mistakes? I mean, to me, that's a cultural issue. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine. He's a client of mine. He's a former board certified surgeon and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. It is a cultural issue, Tom, and we we just are not a society where we really believe that. You know, we only want the wins. We only celebrate the highlights, you know, and especially in the um, the age of social media, we only celebrate the wins. That's what we celebrate. You know, we do not celebrate failure. So I do not know how you um, create that culture because of just how we think you know, maybe you um, you start a newsletter, like the growth newsletter, and you talk about people's low points. And then there's another piece of that where you show where they've grown from that. We're just not a society where we do that. Well, you know, so so here's an example. So the, a, a typical saying is failure is not an option. And yet you, right. have, you have Elon Musk, who's probably the best failure in the world. Who says <laughs> failure is the his 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 quote is failure is the only option. We have to fail. We have to fail because if we don't fail, we can't progress. And so he's actually established that that failure is a good is is good. Failure is a good thing. So yeah, I, but think about somehow. this. Think about this. Think about the uh, the execution of that. We have performance reviews. You know, so we're evaluating people every six months, every twelve months, and. If 80% of that was about all the things that you failed on, you wouldn't have a job much longer. So I hear you, but how do we operationalize that? Is it right. just, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I hear you. Sometimes there's really great sound bites out in the universe, but then how do we actually do that? You know, how does that apply? Well, so for example, let me give you an example. So we have a rule in our business and our business is, um, don't share a problem without a solution. I'm yeah. okay with problems. You share your problems all day long, but don't put that, don't give me your problem, right? I don't want your problem. What I want is, okay, here's the problem. I want you to admit, look, there's a problem, but at the same time, okay, so here's how I would solve it. So I'm, I'm writing a new book. And um, so you'll, you'll, you'll relate to this having just, uh, just launching your new book. Um, I turned it over, of course, to staff to say, okay, go through this and do these charts and do this and do this. And I come, they come back and they say, well, you know, you're inconsistent here. And like they stopped and I'm going, okay, so if I'm inconsistent there, what would you do? Okay, so what's next? 
And to me, that's part of that culture is, you know, it's, it's okay to make a mistake. It's just not okay to leave the mistake a mistake, right? It, it, it's like Buckminster Fuller, the great genius of the 20th century said, a mistake is not a sin unless it's until it's not admitted. Once it's admitted, it's fine. You have to admit mm -hmm. that mistake. I, I, I do think that's an issue we have. And I think we create that culture within our organization and we might even create that culture within ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Or with our clients and, mm -hmm. and so forth. So, so let's shift a little bit to the, what I call the unintentional or the evolutional fraudster. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because I think they're, I, I think that's the worst one just because it's not obvious. And so how do you see when something is, is has become fraudulent? Let, let me give you a, 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 tell you a story. I, I know you've got all these stories in your book. Um, I want to, uh, so I had a client a number of years ago and they had a bookkeeper and the bookkeeper, I always tell people the two people are most likely to steal from you are your partner and your bookkeeper. And the bookkeeper had been their friend for 25 years, never had an issue. But as we know, when it comes to fraud, it's motive and opportunity, right? It, you you got to have both motive and opportunity, and you can never control motive. Well, what happened was, is this, um, this bookkeeper, uh, her husband uh, went ill. And so what she did was she goes, ah. Oh, I don't want to ask for money. So she was too ashamed to ask for money. Um, but what she noticed is she'd made some mistakes in the past and they'd never been caught. And so she said, you know what? These people, they have a lot of money. I'm just going to borrow it. And I see, I don't know if you've seen this, but I see this a lot where they just started, bar she started by borrowing and she paid it back. And then she noticed well, nothing happens. And then, because I want to get to this, because you mentioned this early on, we start justifying. And she started justifying. She goes, well, they didn't even miss it. And you know, they don't really pay me very much. And I'm, I may have 25 years, I'm due. And so she started keeping it. Well, they didn't find it until it was a half a million dollars. And at that point, you know, now her life's destroyed. Because nobody, you know, her best, I mean, these were some of her best friends that she was doing bookkeeping for. They don't trust her, right? And so, so how do you, you know, kind of how do you, how do you watch that? How do you yeah. how do you deal with that kind of what I call an unintentional fraudster? Well, you know, first I, I want to give you some origin of why I even um, single out these other two categories, which is accidental perpetrators and righteous perpetrators. The reason for the to creating these categories is because so many of us do not identify as intentional perpetrators. Right. We don't we don't see ourselves that way. You know, we don't see ourselves anything like Bernard Madoff or um, Ken Lay from Enron. We don't see ourselves like that, but we can see ourselves following the boss's orders. We can see ourselves trying to use our power and privilege within an organization to help someone outside of our organization. And so that's why I first wanted to open this perpetrator category up to where you could actually see yourself there. So how we prevent it is I think being mindful of the environments that we create that we work in. So if you are, if you have, no concern of how the money is made or who your clients are or who your customers are, all you care about is the money, then you've then created an, an environment 
that breeds a certain type of person. And so you need to be mindful of that. And so you've mentioned it before, but I think we, we don't spend enough time really understanding our culture and understanding how our culture can dominate and, and hurt, hurt so many aspects of all the good that we may have in our organization. So culture is king. You know, some people say cash is king. Culture is actually king. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and then you have people um, that they start out, Bernie Madoff may have started out legitimate. I'm guessing he probably did. Sure. And, and then he saw, wow, people are trusting me. And I, I saw this, um, I had actually had a friend um, who is currently serving time in federal prison uh, for a Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. And um, what happened was, is he was doing legitimate, he was taking investors' money, he was doing legitimate work. But like you said, he it was the fear, it was the fear of looking stupid. I like that. <laughs> fear looking stupid. So it almost sounds like a, like fools, right? <laughs> uh, I kind of like that, fools. Um, mm-hmm. Fear of looking stupid. And, and that's what happened. He didn't want to admit his mistake. And so what he did was, he goes, well... I've got new money coming in. I'll just pay these old people, right? That's the definition of Ponzi scheme, new money um, paying the old people. And so that's what he did until it stopped working because eventually that runs out, ran out for Bernie Madoff. Uh, you know, it, it runs out for everybody eventually, but. Um, you know, it's interesting as, as you were talking that. though, so many of us, we sort of live our lives almost Ponzi-like. You know, we, yeah, we think do. about what credit, think about how we live on with credit cards. I mean, we just, we're always are <laughs> living to pay back, you know, that's so a, we all sort of live good, this way. That's a good point. We should start calling credit cards Ponzi schemes. They they're are. Just, they're just personal Ponzi schemes. I think, personal that's a, Ponzi I think that is a time, perfect, you, perfect way to put it. There's a lot of ideas coming in this podcast today. First, we have a new acronym called FOOLS. Fear of looking stupid. That's the first one. And like personal that. Ponzi schemes. Think about it. Think about it. That's what a credit card allows us to do. Yeah, it, it makes it easy. We don't it have makes the, it easy. As you said, we don't have the internal controls, right? So we don't have the internal controls on our finances, right? That's so, right. And then we've got this fear of looking stupid. So That's we right. got to keep up with our neighbors. We need, they're, they're, they're so successful. We have to be like them. Right. So not only do mm-hmm. I feel like if, uh, looking stupid, fear of missing out on the social yeah. side of it. Think, so it's... Think, think about some of the tough conversations professionally that we often don't have. You think about doctors and lawyers have tough conversations with people all the time, especially right. doctors. Right. They have tough conversations, whether they're delivering bad news. But as a financial professional, how frequently do we want to sit down or have to sit down and say, you know what? I've lost you $50,000. I've lost you a million dollars this year. And I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. I was doing my best, but yeah, I've lost you money. Do we really want to have that conversation? Are we really trained to have that conversation? So we want to fix it. And something that one of my um, righteous perpetrators in my book has, um, as I've learned through her, is smart people are hired to fix problems. Like right. you said, what's the solution? I'm not going to come to you with a problem. I'm going to come to you with the problem and the solution. And so that's what I'm going to come to as a client, to my client. I'm not going to tell you I failed at something. I'm going to give you a solve. And so that solve could be 
fraudulent, but it could be a soft. It could be a Ponzi scheme. It could be, I can make your money back by taking this investor's money and giving you back and sort of fixing you. Now I've created this other problem over here, but I'm going to fix that later. So it's this vicious cycle that a highly ethical person can find themselves in. And that's why I wanted to create those two other categories so people could see themselves there. Interesting. So I, I want to just touch on one other type of perpetrator here. And this is actually somebody who doesn't know that they're perpetrating a fraud because they're not perpetrating the fraud, their partner is. And let me give you an example. So I've got a, a I mean, I've got two good examples. Um, one, I had uh, good friends and they were promoting, um, it was a, it's a real estate, but everything they wanted to do was right. They were, they were educating their, their investors. They were doing everything right. They had a partner who was actually um, fixing up the homes for the investments. Well, the partner wasn't doing it and they didn't, they didn't follow, they, they didn't know they weren't doing it and they kept asking and they didn't get that information. Sure enough, next thing they know that literally the FBI is knocking on their door and they're going, look, we've got, and they've got all these complaints. My, my, you know, I put all this money into this home and it's not being, it's not being done. I'm not getting the answers. What's going on? And so they are actually caught up. They literally were promoting somebody else, somebody else who was committing the fraud. So that that's one example. I have a current one actually right now where um, that I'm aware of. Um, and I actually literally warn clients away from this. I want to talk about why, you know, how to warn people away from things. Um, but this was a, it, it had really too good to be true tax benefits. Um, I read the tax opinion, which I disagreed with. And um, it was uh, it was in the energy business and the returns just seemed, oh, they were so good. And actually people who'd gotten these returns convinced other people to get in, right? Fear of, fear of missing out, right? And it turned out that the person who was doing all the promotion, they didn't know. They literally didn't know that their partner who was actually doing, was supposed to be doing the work it was just complete Ponzi scheme for them. They, they were a complete fraudster. They were an intentional fraudster, but here you have an unintentional who's actually trying to do something good that's promoting an intentional fraudster. So my question to you for both stories, how do you not know what your partner's doing? Yeah, there you go. That's the I question. Mean, like, like, I mean, like, how do you not know? Beca because it's your partner. Mm -hmm. So again, are you too busy? What questions are you asking? What information are you asking? What are you reviewing? How do you not know what your partner's doing? And if you don't know, why are they your partner? Just do it on your own. If, you, if you're if you that in the dark, that, that was what I was thinking as you were sharing yep. the story. I'm like, how do you not know what your partner's doing? Well, on top of that, here's here's actually where the, the what the red flag was to me when I was actually an, a client brought this to me and said, what do you think? And I said, so find out about this, 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 right? Due diligence. And they said, well, they won't tell us. It's a, it's a trade secret. I said, run away. <laughs> if they say it's a trade secret, they're not going to tell their investors how they're doing it. Run as fast as you can. It, and and they like, did. Fortunately, they did. For somebody else didn't. I mean, lots of other people put, I mean, I, I know somebody put a million dollars into this. I mean, it's like gone. Think about this too, Tom. We can take this even bigger. Going back to Elizabeth Holmes, how in the world did she sign wow. a deal with Walgreens? Walgreens. Walgreens. 
How did the Walgreens executive, legal counsel, compliance counsel, how did all of them- smart people. Smart people that you would think do all of their due diligence and they sign off and let this fake technology be in stores for actual customers to use and it doesn't work. And what, (laughs) how does that happen? So what do you think? How, How does that happen? You know, I think that the way it happens is um, there is this halo executive, a halo startup founder that can that we have created, instilled so much power in them that whatever they say goes and we don't want to push back because they have so much buy in from so many other place people that when you do push back, you then take the heat and you don't want to do that. And that's who Elizabeth Holmes became. She befriended the right people. So then she had this sort of armor around her that was made her untouchable. We have a similar issue with Sam Bankman Freed, right? Absolutely. Like, you know, if you get in with the right people and get the right endorsers, you can do whatever you want. And that's a problem. You know, it's sort of how we, we in our society now, we just uplift celebrities in a way that really, once you get a certain buy-in, you're golden. And so the internal controls go out the door. We don't care anymore because you have the right endorsements. And I think that that's what happened with Holmes. That's what happened with Bankman Free. The right people, enough of the right people endorsed those individuals where we were just like, well, they did it. They said it was okay. I don't need to do any checking. And that's the problem. So, so I've, I've heard two just uh, brilliant things here. First of all, um, slow, down. slow down, slow down, slow down, pay attention to it. Take your time with it. Um, second of all, outlier returns. It's either an outlier. It's like, okay, this drug, this drug, I can lose 50 pounds in three months. If I take this drug, I'm just going, okay, so yeah. All right. So <laughs> should we maybe get like, five years of testing and approvals and all that kind of stuff before we even think about putting that in our bodies. Um, but we're looking for that, Matt. It's the magic pill. It's the diet pill, right? We're I mean, looking for the, quick, the, the quickest, the, the quickest quick way. Win. And that's where we are. So, so out. Okay. So we, if it's an outlier return, which they're out there, I mean, let's face it. They're out there. I mean, if you invest, but they're far and few between. They're far they, and they few are. between. They are. They're very rare. They're very rare. But if you invest in Tesla when it was four hundred dollars a share, it is now worth several thousands of dollars a share. And, for that, and that's that if money. you and had was the an insight. Yep. If you had that early insight to yep. even believe that what he was talking about would even be where it is today, that takes insight. And a lot of us just were too risk averse to do that. Right. Okay. So that's the interesting thing. So how do you? How do you go, we're too risk averse and yet we take mammoth risks? Is, is, it, is it the risk re- re- reward that we go, well, the, the reward is so big that I'm willing to take that risk? Yeah, I do. I think I do think that if the reward is big enough, we, we will take the risk. Um, a lot of times I think the reward is not large enough. So we're able to stay risk averse. But my goodness, if the reward is big enough, you know, you think about all the fraud that happened during the pandemic. What was most interesting to me about the fraud during the pandemic 
were the new players. It was the business owners, yep. the doctors, the nurses, the people that you would never think would ever engage. Oh, and it's still going on. We, we're, I'm, I see it every day in the uh, um, employee retention credit. This is going to be the biggest fraud in the history of the federal government is the employee it retention is. credit. And it's on television. So here's, here's my thought. If it made it to television, <laughs> you've got to be really, really careful. Sure. You're right. You're right. But, you know, the, the new players, the people that were willing to say the likelihood of me getting caught is so slim. The controls are so lax. I know I only have three employees, but maybe just maybe I could say I have 30 because the more employees I say I have, the more money I'm going to get. And so I'm just going to try and see what happens. And you heard that there are a couple people that did it and they were successful. I'm willing to try it too. So I think if the reward is high enough, we become less risk averse and then just risk crazy. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's a spectrum that we just jump to the other end on. You know, you make a good point on fear of getting caught because of course that I, I see this every day in the tax world, right? So if I take, I mean, like you have a contract to come to your house and they say, it's $120 if you give me a credit card or a, or a check and it's $100 if you give me cash. Okay, well, they are committing tax fraud. That's tax fraud. You can go to prison for that. Uh, they're going, my chances that my risk of getting caught is so low. So the risk mm -hmm. of getting caught versus the risk of the reward seems to be, I mean, those are, that's, that's like inversely proportionate, right? But this is what's interesting, Tom, about the example that you gave. Most people, I would say 100% of the population would not know that's tax fraud. They would not think that they just committed tax fraud by saying A or B. If you give me A, it's this. But if you give me B, I'm going to lower it and make it this. Most people won't think that that's tax fraud. They nope. wouldn't think that. Even though they're not reporting it. Now, here's the other one I get. So I don't have to claim the income if it's under $600. And I'm going, it's not how it works. They don't have to report it to you. They but don't you have to have report to you if, if it's under $600. But you still have to claim it. It's still taxable it. to you, right? And and yet I hear this from people that, I know, you're a smart person. How are you thinking that this is okay? Right? So, so well, if you- Well, because, and I think that that's a good one because I think the, when you have, um, when the situation doesn't mirror itself, that's when I think the confusion comes. So if they don't have to report it, but you still have to claim it, then the, you have an, an imbalance there. So I think that that's where the confusion comes. You know, if they have to, if they don't have to report it, then I don't have to report it. That's sort of how right. we think we, we you know, right. but it's not, it's, it's a seesaw. And we know what happens with a seesaw. If one person jumps off the other, you know, it's a seesaw. And I think that that's where the confusion comes in. Interesting. Interesting. All right. So um, what are uh, just two or three things other than what we've talked about? Any any other advice for investors and business owners when it comes to avoiding uh, or, or catching fraud before it gets too far? My advice um, would be, one, to make sure you have an, a, some type of established policy. Um, and we talked about you know, the buzzword of internal controls, but just make sure you have a process in place. No process breeds fraud and everybody sees it. 
your um, potential investors see it. The um, organized crime units see it. Everyone sees it when you don't have a process. So just know, put a process in place. It doesn't have to be complex, but it needs to be something. Um, there are a lot of um, advisors, um, retired partners from accounting firms. There's lots of people that can help you learn a process or understand a process. So that would be my first advice is put a process in place and then test your process. Ask your organization, hey, you know, we, I'm starting this new process. Just want to know, if you were trying to defraud this organization, how could you? What would you do? It's a safe space. I'm not, this is a no judgment zone, but I just want to creatively think about like the, 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 the um, loopholes that are in our organization and you're on the ground, you see it, what would you do? And then you're going to find all of the openings, all of your exposures that you need to plug up. So test your system. So first put a process in place, but then test it. And so hack your own system. Ask people, if you were trying to take money out of this, what would you do? If is it set up a fake vendor? Like there are things that people will tell you if they feel safe with you, they will tell you. And so the last thing I would, would um, say is truly understand your culture because like we said earlier, culture is king and people aren't gonna tell you anything if they don't trust you if they think the culture is um is weak they will disconnect and the last thing you want is your star employee to disconnect i love it i love it so the book is fool me once i love the it's it's great we'll just leave it at that fool me once you can find it um uh, uh kelly so um kelly richmond pope is the author and has joined us today. Thank you so much, Kelly. Um, where could they find, besides the book, where could they find more out about uh, your work and what you're doing? Sure. So um, my work is on, I talk a lot on um, social. <laughs> so on um, LinkedIn, so connect on LinkedIn. Love to connect with you. I post a lot there. Um, my website is kellyrichmanpope.com. And on that website, there's a game. So if you go to the website, go to game. There's a game you can play that'll tell you what type of perpetrator or whistleblower would you ever be? And it relates back to the book. I like that. And um, yeah, you know, check out the documentary, All the Queen's Horses, and you'll see, I'm a, I'm in it a little bit, you know, I'm a little, one of the uh, commentators, but um, man, man, mainly on social. So LinkedIn, I, I love right. LinkedIn and the content that I learn on LinkedIn and the connections that we make there. So um, that's where I am. So find me there. Awesome. Thank you. And um, thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, remember that uh, you, any time that you give somebody your money or somebody has access to your money, you have potential of losing that money either unintentionally or intentionally through fraud. And it's not always the, the, the uh, evil perpetrator. It is a lot of times, as, as, as uh, Kelly mentions in her book, um, it's people that are either righteous perpetrators, as you call them righteous perpetrators. And, and what was the other one called? Unintentional perpetrators? Accidental. So intentional yeah. perpetrators, accidental perpetrators, and righteous perpetrators. There you go. There you go. So um, just remember, and, and when you do that, when you're really paying attention, and you know, just like we say uh, at WealthAbility, what happens is you're uh, you know, you need to, you want to make more money, but most of all, you don't want to lose money. As Warren Buffett says, the key to investing is don't lose money and, uh, and, and preventing yourself from getting involved in fraudulent schemes and Ponzi schemes or in having, you know, unintentional or intentional, accidental or intentional fraudsters at your office. Um, that's how we always make more money. And uh, the reality is, is that when we 
understand how to make money. It turns out we also pay less tax. We'll see everyone next time. You've been listening to The Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.